Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 126. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, something a little different for you folks this week. H.P. Lovecraft, a man before his time, and by that I mean a man who died before getting to participate in the Drabblecast Super Animal Megabeast Deathmatch competition. Stay tuned for details on Season 3 in the coming weeks. Teaser! H.P. Lovecraft was born on August 20th, 1890, and along with Edgar Allan Poe was one of the most influential horror writers of the 20th century. It's his birthday this week, so we thought we'd embarrass his pre-natural disembodied spirit, or his squalid reanimated corpse, whichever the case may be, not with an awkward surprise party, but with a double dose of his work. This week on the show, we're bringing you Dagon, a notorious classic Lovecraft yarn, while simultaneously producing, on our other short fiction podcast, Drabblecast B-Sides, a more offbeat, lesser-known work of his that he wrote with his wife of two years, Sonia Green, called The Horror at Martin's Beach. This story is freaking awesome. I mean it. Get the yawn at Drabblecast.org, click the Drabblecast B-Sides link at the top of the page, and subscribe to that mess if you aren't already. I absolutely guarantee that you're going to want to hear this story. Yep, out of all the extensive copyright-released offerings of the broad, fertile United States public domain, these two stories are truest to the heart of the Drabblecast. Oh, and there's also a special Lovecraft-inspired bardle at the end of this week's show, which, if you're new to the show, a bardle is a song that I write and perform dedicated to a Drabblecast donor and based on some loose idea that they have. Be sure you listen all the way through that mumbo-jumbo about Drabblecast being produced under a Creative Commons attribution, blah, blah, and will you give us money so we can keep going, blah, blah, because I think you'll enjoy the song. So, one of the things that Lovecraft is most well known for is his significant contribution to cosmic horror, the idea that life is incomprehensible to human minds, and that the universe is fundamentally alien. Oh, stop rolling your eyes. You're just being glib, Matt. You're being glib. Don't be glib. I like saying glib. Ol' H.P. has developed quite the cult following these days, despite being pretty much a nobody back in his prime. Stephen King called Lovecraft the 20th century's greatest practitioner of the classic horror tale. And that's a pretty high accolade, depending, I guess, on whether or not you think Stephen King is a good writer or just an autonomous, somewhat cognizant scrotum. Lovecraft's pessimistic and cynical Cthulhu mythos is part of what puts him on the map, a series of loosely interconnected fiction featuring a pantheon of human nullifying entities, as well as the Necronomicon, an unfortunately fictional book of magical rites and forbidden lore. You can find and read all of Lovecraft's short fiction at a great little site called Dagon Bites. that's B-Y-T-E-S dot com. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Also, if you're a fan of Lovecraft and or stories, life, and music from the early 20th century, and you aren't listening to FNH's Cthulhu podcast, boy, are you missing out. 
cthulhupodcast.co.uk That pretty much says it all, doesn't it? F&H does a spectacular job there, not only reading great work by Lovecraft and damn good Lovecraft wannabes, but also bringing interesting commentary and insights about the man and the period. Definitely check them out. So, this is something we haven't done in, um, about 120 episodes. It's the Drabble Poetry Corner, baby. As appetizers before the main story entree, we used to run poems occasionally in place of drabbles. Turns out, though, that poetry is all touchy-feely, solely the practice of chicks, angsty emo kids, and sensitive, candy-ass gentlemen who always talk like this. However, there is one solitary example of freakin' rad poetry, and guess who wrote it? The man himself, Mr. Hewlett Packard Lovecraft. It's a sequence of 36 sonnets called The Fungi from Yagoth, about a person who, per usual, obtains an ancient book of esoteric knowledge that allows him to travel to other planets and strange parts of the universe, sans Falcor the Luck Dragon. We're not going to run all 36 sonnets, just a few of my favorites. The place was dark and dusty and half-lost in tangles of old alleys near the quays, reeking of strange things brought in from the seas, and with queer curls of fog that west winds tossed. Small lozenge panes obscured by smoke and frost just showed the books in piles like twisted trees rotting from floor to floor congeries of crumbling elder lore at little cost. I entered, charmed, and from a cobwebbed heap took up the nearest tome and thumbed it through, trembling at curious words that seemed to keep some secret, monstrous, if only one knew. Then, looking for some cellar old in craft, I could find nothing but a voice that laughed. (laughs) The great hill hung close over the old town, a precipice against the main street's end, green tall and wooded looking darkly down upon the steeple at the highway bend. Two hundred years the whispers had been heard about what happened on the man-shunned slope. Tales of an oddly mangled deer or bird, or of lost boys whose kin had ceased to hope. One day the mailman found no village there, nor were its folks or houses seen again. People came out of Aylesbury to state, Yet they all told the mailman it was plain that he was mad for saying he had spied the great hill's gluttonous eyes and jaws stretched wide. Once every year in autumn's wistful glow, the birds fly out over an ocean waste calling and chattering in a joyous haste to 
to reach some land their inner memories know. Great terraced gardens where bright blossoms blow, and lines of mangoes luscious to the taste, and temple groves with branches interlaced, over cool paths, all these their vague dreams show. They search the sea for marks of their old shore, for the tall city white and turreted, but only empty waters stretch ahead, so that at last they turn away once more, yet sunken deep where alien polyps throng, the old towers miss their lost remembered song. The day had come again when as a child I saw just once that hollow of old oaks, gray with a ground mist that enfolds and chokes the slinking shapes which madness has defiled, in that the same an herbage rank and wild clings round an altar whose carved signs involve that nameless one to whom a thousand smokes rose eons gone from unclean towers apiled. I saw the body spread on that dank stone, and knew those things which feasted were not men. I knew this strange gray world was not my own, but Yugoth passed the starry voids, and then the body shrieked at me with a dead cry, and all too late I knew that it was I. And we teach our kids Shakespeare first because... Anyways, so on to this week's story. Dagon was written in 1917 and was one of the first stories Lovecraft wrote as an adult. It was first published in the November 1919 edition of The Vagrant, issue number 11. After reading Lovecraft's early work as a student, W. Paul Cook, editor of The Vagrant, encouraged Lovecraft to resume writing fiction. That summer, Lovecraft wrote two stories, The Tomb and Dagon. Lovecraft said the story was inspired by a dream he had. Poor bastard. So, without further ado, Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug, which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess though never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. 
So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was completely south of the equator. Of the longitude, I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awakened, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished. For there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing, and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might, nor were there any sea fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. 
That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first spied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far from the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again. In the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illuminate. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of Paradise Lost and Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declavity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a shadow of a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, and the like. 
Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size was an array of bas-reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a doré. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy bulging eyes and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than itself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then, suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemous-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, and while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds, I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I knew that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god. But soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night 
especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not have all been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny war or exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand, the window. The window! <laughs> oh, the window indeed. Hope you enjoyed. So, no time for listener feedback this week. We've got to get this immense slippery body on the road. First, though, by announcing the winner of this week's 100-character TwitFic contest... <laughs> Wonko takes the win with a really fun one-sentence story that has been thusly twat. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter to read contest winners each week, observe sophomoric arguments among editorial staff, and receive other sporadic nuggets of perplexing entertainment. Take 10 minutes out of your day and write us one yourself. Remember, these are stories exactly 100 characters, not including spaces or title, if you give it one. You might just win. TwitFix submissions are mostly conducted in our cluttered, twaddling forum community under the topic TwitFix Drabble Contest. You can post your story there, where we will read it, or you can send it in to us at drabblecast at yahoo.com, along with any 100-word Drabble stories that you'd like considered, or stories under 2,000 words that you'd like considered for a feature story. Confusing enough for you? So, the kick-ass donor of the week is... Tom Baker. Tom Baker's the man. Not only has he helped Drabblecast out with some hardcore IT issues, he's personally bankrolled many a Drabble story with his fiscal contributions. In fact, let me put it in more relevant, quantifiable terms. Tom's donations alone would have been enough to bring you the past seven Drabblecast episodes, production and all. So let's all give his avatar a harmless, completely platonic and non-suggestive pat on the back. Ooh, saucy! There you go. Tom owns a company called Steradian Technologies, which makes guns for kids. Laser tag guns. Settle down, you freaking hippies. 
And he also owns Omega Music Technologies, which makes drums for people who can't drum. Ever played rock band? Pat that avatar, bitches. Check out his links in our show notes. He's a swell guy with some awesome jobs. Also, check out the Drabblecast fan archive he runs, with MP3s of all the episodes, Bartles, and everything you could wish for from our awkward little podcast in easy-to-find, downloadable form. So, Tom wanted a song to christen the new building he just bought for his business, which just happened to be an old funeral home rumored to be haunted. In that regard, he wanted the music to have a little soul. (laughs) So, I wrote this ditty for him just happens to work out perfectly for our little Lovecraft birthday bonanza, and it's called The Heartache Over Innsmouth. Lovecraft's story A Shadow Over Innsmouth is one of my favorites of all time, second only to my new favorite, The Horror at Martin's Beach. Playing on Drabblecast besides. In the story, we find a protagonist encountering a small town in which everyone is a member of a cult called the Esoteric Order of Dagon. Apparently, the deal on the table with Dagon is, if you accept him into your heart, you get to mutate into a half-human, half-fish-frog chimera. Going once, going twice, anyone? Bueller? If you like the song, you might just enjoy my actual CD, which you can buy for a meager sum by going to normsherman.com and following the relevant routes to Billage. I tend to write songs from speculation and ideas. I get to thinking, you know, I wonder what whale nipples look like. And then, before you know it, I've got a bluegrass song about milking humpbacks for cheese. I think that's why I like doing Bartles so much, because everybody's got absurd ideas they'd like cranked into songs and stories. Anyways, hope you enjoy the song. You can download it and rip it for free if you feel so inclined. You'll find a link in our show notes. Same goes for our show. Both are produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't sell it or meddle with it, just share it with your broskies. We appreciate any donations you can chuck at us through the PayPal link on our website. They pay authors for their creativity, help us license music, keep the website, and keep the show on the road. You can throw us a one-time donation, or easily subscribe for $5 a month with no-hassle, guilt-free automation. Well, hey, that's our show. We'll see you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that the old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones will ever be. I met this girl. And I really thought she was the one, you know? But then she joined this esoteric cult, and everything started to change. I felt like I hardly knew her anymore, with all the chanting and late-night rituals, the sudden appearance of gills above her clavicle. I told her one night, Baby, I'm sorry, but it's either Dagon or me. And she made her choice. The new kid in school, a first year freshman theosophy major at Miskatonic U. Wandering through my life in a daze there until I met you. And your bulging watery eyes felt like I was tied down with my insides hanging out like a human sacrifice. I asked you on a date. Broken guttural whisper
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.